Welcome to Warp Zone, a podcast on sci-fi, philosophy, religion, politics, gaming, and anything else taboo. Yay! Oh, you left me hanging with a U. <laughs> I'm Ben Benassik. I'm Tara Smith. Hello. Hello. Uh, we are in separate spaces again. Yes. Yes. We are. And we apologize in advance for the slightly less than uh, good audio coming through because yeah. I couldn't find any headphones and I'm at home. It's a little bit echoey, so we apologize. Mm. Uh, and I am at ACU on the, it says second floor, but it's actually the third floor. I don't know why universities do this, but I'm on the second floor of the library. But yes. if you're in any other quote-unquote normal building in the world, this is the third floor. Okay. Uh, why, why, do you notice that? Like when we're at um, Sydney Uni, everything yeah. is level three, which is ground floor. Yep. Yeah, and then you've got two and one underneath, and then four and, you know, upwards. What? I don't understand. What's the aversion to ground? It's, it's a know. strange thing. That's um, weird. Anyway, uh, and I don't have a truck backing up this time. I discovered what the truck noise was last week. What? With it. Well, I usually go to another building on campus where I've been um, tutoring at, at the moment, and they've yep. got some nice desks and chairs there that you can sit around and there's some extra quiet study space away from the student body, which is inside the library and the noise that goes with it. You know, sometimes you need some quiet space. Um, turns out they have taken all of those desks and chairs away. <laughs> so <laughs> that truck was actually, whilst we were talking and whilst I was looking forward to going and sitting somewhere, was actively destroying the space, which I... Fine, so dear. Here it is. That's so funny. And have you had any coffee stories this morning? Uh, well, they were. No one was there at all um, in line, and I walk up to the counter, and um, one of the people there is like cross-armed, and I'm like, "Oh, sorry, can I get a coffee?" I'm like, automatically, I'm apologising because I have to ask for a coffee. Um, it's not great. It's it's not a good situation at all. Um, yep. Yeah, but I have some mandarins with me, so I might try and get through and just eat those, but I think that I'm going to get something more sustaining um, yep. than that. But we haven't spoken much the last week. Uh, no, I keep messaging you and you don't reply, so I have uh, <laughs> shade. thrown some shade early on in the morning. Yeah, uh, so not for lack of trying, but you're right, you haven't responded much for, for me, to me no, this week. No, I apologise. Um, things have been really busy. So I had... Uh, or do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Because I know nothing about what you've been doing. Because what? I have I know nothing about what you've been doing the last week either, so... Uh, yeah, it's strange that, because maybe because you don't ask in the week. <laughs> I'm asking now. This <laughs> okay. makes up for um, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, things are going good. We saw last saw each other at Trivia on Tuesday. Oh, when we came we came second, yeah. yeah, and that he who shall not be named team one first, bastards. Yeah. If you're listening, we hate you. <laughs> one guy. The guy that goes to the toilet between round two and three. Yeah. <laughs> and he you're knows. Watching... He knows. So I threw some shade at him. Um, yeah. He. <laughs> so whenever he comes back to the toilet, I like loudly go, oh, is it that time again? Oh, you're going to the toilet. And so... um. In the group photo, when I was standing up and like just being quite silly, putting my arms out and trying to be taller than everyone else, he walks up to me and he's like, oh, you're taller or are you cheating? And just <laughs> looks at me. <laughs> and so he's, his level of shade is what he has been accused of, which is not a great level of shade. That's pretty funny. Mm. Um, there's a, I think there's a Reddit forum called Self-Aware Wolves and it's like people that sort of comment things that like are so obviously self-aware of their own kind of thing so this mm. is like a self-aware wolf moment absolutely yeah. Funny. yeah so we came second in trivia which was good um and what else happened wednesday i think i picked up the cat i have another cat in my house um from a petrol station uh her name's ethel it's short for ethanol uh basically my friend tina who traps Cats said, you need to just come see this kitten. I think she's really friendly. She shouldn't be on the streets. And I was kind of like, oh, you know, I don't know whether I should come get it. Like, oh, no, it was on Monday that I got her. Yeah, it was yeah. on Monday. Yeah, yeah, so I was like, 
I don't know whether I should go get her. I'm not really, I can't really bring another cat home. And I went to the petrol station and it walked straight up to me and was really friendly. I was like, I can't leave it at the petrol station. So I brought it home. Both Toms were pretty pissed off, the cat and the human. Um, <laughs> not happy that there's another cat at home. Um, and then I tried to, she tried to go on a trial at another foster house because she's very, uh, she's got a lot of attitude. She's a tortoise shell. And basically she bullied the other two cats into submission so that they felt, they stayed in the cat run for like two days because they didn't want to come inside the house. So, oh, no. so I had to bring her back. And now her and Thomas, the cat, have a bit of like an okay understanding, but she's going to another foster home on the yeah, so she's very cute. Um, so there was that. That was on Monday. Oh, Tuesday. We, oh, got, yeah. we got presents. We got cat presents from Mark. Oh, that's true. Mark yeah. gave us some very cute little uh, cat ducklings from Trivia. They were our mascots for the day. Mark likes to bring Trivia mascots. Last time it was a little Cthulhu uh, plushie. That's right. And this time it was a little, yeah, yeah. very cute. I like that they're themed in regard to the, um, the podcast. So... <laughs> we shouldn't do anything too taboo in relation to like sexual imagery or stuff because who knows what he'll bring like yeah i know that's true blow up doll or something <laughs> yeah. yeah i brought this i thought of you guys <laughs> no totally um so then what else that was on the tuesday um what else happened Oh, I went to a symposium with uh, Chris and um like islamic guy it was called finding purpose in the modern world it was kind of interesting um, it was a little bit like Quran preachy. I kind of feel like as soon as someone starts just constantly rattling off the Quran, if it means very little to you, it's not like I'm going to hear it and go, ah, that makes sense now. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a bit like, you know, but I, it was still very respectful. Um, it was run by uh, Samsa, I think, um, mm -hmm. uh, the Islamic uh, kind of society. Uh, so that was good. I went mostly to support Chris. And then we went out to dinner after and then Thursday... I lent a cat trap to some other people. So I have two cat traps now that I'm lending out to people in the community to trap their own cats and take to the vet. So I've got like a little cat trapping empire. What? So why does anyone need to cat? Why does anyone need to trap their own cat? Surely if uh, you have to trap. Sorry, I mean their own colony. So oh, right. Okay. okay. Right. So you shouldn't need to trap your own cat. You're doing <laughs> I was going to say, yes. You don't have ownership of cat if you need to trap the right. cat to. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've got two traps I keep at my house because one of the things is a setback is people see a colony and they post on the TNR groups being like, hey, can someone come and trap my cats? And no one just comes and traps your cat for you. No one has the resources. You know what I mean? Like some rescues can help, but generally they can't. So it's just easy if you do it yourself. And that's what we had to do. So one of the setbacks, though, is the traps are like $70 an hour to hire. So now I've bought two <clears throat> with the help with our friends so people can just borrow them from us instead. That's awesome. So it makes it a bit easier. Yeah. And then I went to the, it was a science fiction film festival on the weekend. Oh, yes. I went Four through, films, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I only was going to go to three and then it went down to two. But I won tickets to two. So that was kind of good. I won tickets to two of the German films. Mm. I just entered the competition. And then the first one, this is so embarrassing. And if anyone who is listening from the Science Fiction Film Festival, which I don't think they are, I'm really sorry. But the first film was so boring, I fell asleep. And I, and like, this is funny because I have never, ever, ever fallen asleep in front of a film, ever. I'm not normally like that. And I wasn't extra tired. It just was really boring, wow. really boring film. So this was a German film called Das Letzte Land, which was kind of an interesting premise from what I remember from the 20 minutes that I saw it. Um, it was about um, a kind of set on Mars or something where they found like an abandoned spaceship and these two people kind of take the spaceship and fly somewhere. They're kind of like, what was interesting is the spaceship was like mechanically decrepit, kind of like maybe a bit more realistic. Because you know how sometimes spaceships always seem really like shiny, super mm. um, kind of like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like sharp and easy and very like futuristic, whereas this almost looked like, a car, kind of the inside of a car kind of thing. So it was sort of like making, I think, a, a kind of realistic attempt at trying to look at what some sort of like post-war kind of decrepit old like kind of patched together spaceship might look like, which I mm -hmm. thought was kind of interesting. Um, but then basically they're only in the ship. There's only two characters and it's meant to be kind of like a psychological journey, but it was just very boring. So that was on the um, Friday, and then on Saturday we went and saw a film called A Living Dog, which was looked really interesting. Um, again, kind of post-apocalyptic, but the audio was seven seconds um, 
out of sync. So you would hear like um, like somebody walk. Uh, sorry, the guy would walk, and then seven seconds later, you hear their steps oh, going. Man. And it was so distracting. And the guy came out and was like, look, you guys can leave. We can refund your tickets. But it was a free ticket anyway. So I was kind of like, well, you know, whatever. And then um, we just decided to leave because I couldn't, I was just was too um, sort of hung up on the seven second delay. <laughs> so then um, that is, every, and then weekend, we just kind of cleaned it a lot on Sunday and ate a lot so that this week we're trying to eat less because we're just we're ate way too much food. Um. Uh, yeah, so that's me. I have bad news for you in relation to the what? not eating food. So, um, what I've been doing uh, on last week, uh, so, hang on, let's go backwards. Tuesday, I did the sacred feasts thing, so four hour lecture seminar thing, and then an hour break, and then four hours again. Yep. It's really, really good. Quite challenging as I had a very pro uh, abortion student in the class. Um, who couldn't like um, look at any other lens or any other taboo topic at all. So I had to deal with that, which was fine. I'm used to dealing with some difficult students as well, teaching in um, particularly an institution like uh, you know, ACU or even Sydney and Newcastle. You, you get people like that that do religious courses. Um, so used to that, but that was quite hard. Um, and then, yeah, well, it's awkward. Like, wonderful. like, how bizarre to be saying that. Like, I don't expect that kind of level of stuff from my university. I've never had anything like that. As you said. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was at UC, so it's yeah, it was. Yeah, true. Um, anyway, is what it is. And then on, th- hang on, that was Wednesday. Third? No, that was Tuesday. Wednesday, I did the lecture at Newcastle, and then I wrote a Hardy to go le- lecture that same day. Mm-hmm very busy and then I was doing marking and I've been marking every night up until about 1am. Um, yeah, because you had heaps to do, right? Heaps of marks. Yeah, yeah, I've got uh, 15 more students to do and it's due today and it's out today. <laughs> so <laughs> those students don't have marks. <laughs> they will have marks by the end of today. So it's fine, but it's only going to be like a day late. So that's, that's actually quite good considering the amount of work that I've had. Um, yeah. And then... So that's Wednesday. Thursday, uh, Jody and I um, went to the hospital um, as part of our prenatal journey thing that they make you do, come and fill out cards. They kick the, me, the guy out of the room to ask her, am I actually a nice person? Is she straight? Oh, really? Yeah, 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 that happens. It's just a standard. Um, that happen. And the nurse is like, oh, you've been through this before. I'm like, yeah. So she's like, you know, so you're going to have to leave the room. I'm like, okay, yeah, cool. I can do that. Do you want me to do that now? She's like, well, I'm up to that question. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'll get up and go. So it's like this weird thing. And then Jody's like, yeah, all right, we can go through this. And I'm like, I walk back in. And they're just like casually chatting. And that's just the way it was. Hey, um, I think it's a good thing. Um, but it was quite funny because I... Jody and I are open about each other in front of each other. You know, as, as you know, Jody's like yeah. very open that way and was like that prior to me getting kicked out of the room and everything. So it's like, yeah, it wasn't an issue at all. Um, we had a lunch together and um, went and bought more shelves at um, Bunnings. So I've been doing it up the garage and fixing it up. So I have to send you a picture because it looks so Yeah, it looks. And the checkup went all well, Ben. Everything was okay. Yeah, 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 everything's good. Everything's fine. Um, yeah, so, uh, and then Friday, I had a dad and Isaiah day, as Isaiah refers to them, and I've been making a sacred feast for my sacred feast students this week, which is tomorrow. And I made, oh, that's exciting. Yeah, and I made vegan vasilopter again. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, five loaves um, of it. Three of them have already been eaten. One, one was almost completely eaten by Isaiah and myself that day after cooking it. Like there was only like a small sliver left, and this is like a big loaf of um, yeah. first loaf. So we're both like hoeing into it at the, the table, and then <laughs> Jodie comes home and Isaiah goes, "Oh, Dad and I ate almost all of it." And Jodie's like, "No, you wouldn't have eaten all of it." I'm like, "Oh." No, not all of them, but you should check the one that we cut. She like like takes up the tablecloth and like yeah, the um 
they call it? The dishcloth thing that I, I put over the uh, yeah, yeah. to keep them warm. Um, yeah, lifts that up and sees some of these small slivers. Like, what the hell? Like, what? <laughs> How did you both eat all of that? So um, they turned out quite good. So I'm taking them tomorrow. Um, yep. and I'm going to send out a message to the department to uh, if anyone wants to come and share um, the cutting of the vessel of water and how that happens. Yeah. Um, what time is that going to happen? Uh, what time is my shoot? It's 11 and 2, I think. 11 and 3. Anyway, I'll, I'll, we'll work it out. We'll yeah, let talk me about, know. Talk about Sounds it off air. 11, 11 and 4, I think it is actually. Yeah, 11 and 4. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be cutting that up, and it's got the coin in there as well. So we're going to do like the proper thing, like we do at my house. Um, that's so. Cool. That's um, nice of you to do that. It is. Yeah, it is nice of me. Yeah, it deserves really good marks from students. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it's all about. Um, and then on Saturday, uh, I had Jack, and we were cleaning up in the roof. Um, so that's you know all household holy type stuff. Uh, and then Sunday we met up with, um, which was yesterday, met up with Jody's friend from university that we see you know, basically every year or so. Um, so it was good to see him. Uh, and we went to MacArthur Square, walked around. It's all good. The last weekend, it's been really, really windy. And so the shop has been the slowest on Saturday and Sunday compared to the rest of the week. Like Saturday earned the same as what um, the Tuesday did. And then oh Sunday did less than that. So it's been a really good week last week for sales and stuff at the shop, but then the weekend was horrible. Um, but it'll come back. It's just, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like when it's windy, no one actually wants to go out. and it's They're all at the beach, aren't they, Ben? They, yeah, that's a joke. That's a, the, they, the listener needs to understand that everyone in Campbelltown goes to the beach and <laughs> in summer, and Tara does not believe that people go to the beach. From Campbelltown, no. From Campbelltown. <laughs> they go down the freeway to Wollongong. Anyway, um, if anyone's listening and is from Campbelltown and goes to the beach, they should leave a message. Yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to know who you are and interview you. Yeah. I expect iTunes reviews and then for you to say, Ben's right, I go to the beach. <laughs> That'd be great. Anyway, um, and now I'm here and we are talking Excellent. about a text. Uh, yes. And that is about it. Uh, do you want to give an introduction? Is there anything else yeah. you need to mention? Um, first, I'll just say that we didn't follow our schedule from last week. We are not doing Camus until next week because we thought it would be better to do it in person because it's a pretty difficult text for me. I don't read a lot of philosophy, so I think it's better if we do it in person and we can go through it slowly. Mm -hmm. So this week we're doing a very short story, kind of, I think it's described as a philosophical sort of uh, short fiction. Uh, by Ursula K. Le Guin, called The Ones Who Walk Away from Amelas. Amelas. Amelas? <laughs> Amelas. I think I, I wrote how it was meant to be pronounced. Hang on. Where did they write it? Amelas. You're right. Amelas. Amelas. Yeah. Um, so uh, should, hmm. before I do the intro, should we start with um, the interview? Sure. Uh, so the interview is as in the, the speech that she gave when she was yep. winning an award, uh, and here is a short snippet. I think we need writers who know the difference between production of a market commodity and the practice of an art. <laughs> Developing Developing written material to suit sales strategies in order to maximize corporate profit and advertising revenue is not quite the same thing as responsible book publishing or authorship. <laughs> Thank you, brave applauders. <laughs> Yet, I see sales departments given control over editorial. I see my own publishers in a silly panic of ignorance and greed charging public libraries for an ebook six or seven times more than they charge customers. We just saw a profiteer try to punish a publisher for disobedience. 
and writers threatened by corporate fatwa. And I see a lot of us, the producers, who write the books and make the books, accepting this, letting commodity profiteers sell us like deodorant and tell us what to publish and what to write? Well, <laughs> I love you too, darling. Books, you know, they're, they're not just commodities. The profit motive is often in conflict with the aims of art. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Just to give some context to that interview, so, um, it's pretty much just Le Guin throwing a lot of shade on finally getting recognized sort of by a literature award when she'd been sort of writing literature all along and sort of making a poke at the kind of stigma sci-fi and fantasy writers get quite frequently. And also, uh, I don't know how much of the interview we're going to play, but that also uh, if you'd listen to the whole thing, it's quite fascinating because she also uh, has some comments on um, – the integrity of writing as an art form as well and not just sort of sell out as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep, and we should just do a little shout out to one of our biggest fans who always listens to our, to our episodes. And it's not Carol, although Carol does listen to our episodes. It's our friend Mark who always sort of has a few comments on what we do and supports us a lot, so we really appreciate that. Yeah, um, his suggestions as well for the... Um, the pod of what to listen to is really good. As has um, Matt has made a suggestion as well, which we have yeah. in the pipeline. Um, it's cool. It's cool. It's funny how you've got people that listen to the podcast. So obviously we've got people from all around the world that are listening to this, and then people that are going through the older uh, episodes and listening to it. But these are people that we actively know, and there's lots of people we know that are very busy. Um, but those two. Uh, John as well, like through them, like they listen pretty much to every episode, um, which is quite nice. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Um, so mm. I just thought we'd better just sort of recognize that briefly before going on to Ursula Le Guin. So um, I've got a little intro, um, sort of just a kind of, I thought I'd, I'd give a bit of a summary and a bit more, more context than we normally do, just because the short story is quite small. I'm sure we're going to have lots to talk about anyway, but I thought I'd just kind of give some general context, mostly because she's just one of my favorite writers. This is one of, she was one of the main inspirations for my whole PhD topic, and I'm a big, big, big fan, so I thought I could take up a little bit of extra time just sort of fangirling over Ursula Le Guin. <laughs> so her name's Ursula Krober Le Guin, but obviously goes by Ursula K. Le Guin. She's an American novelist, and she actually prefers to be called a novelist, not a science fiction writer. But she does write a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. She was born in 1929 in Berkeley, California. Uh, her literary career spans nearly, spanned nearly 60 years, including poetry, literary criticism, and children's books. And she was the daughter of an author and an anthropologist. Her father was Alfred Louis Krober. And uh, so he's. this is quite interesting so he's quite known for a very detailed study he did um on a man named ishi who was the last surviving member of the yahi people a native american tribe who he studied over a period of years and and he uh sort of having ishi around really influenced Le Guin in her early years and i think that that interest in anthropology is really carried into a lot of the writing she does um she did after and so one of her uh, first sort of ma uh, famous works was uh, A Wizard of Earth Sea, which is a very expansive sort of fantasy series. I think there's about six books in the series. The first one's A Wizard of Earth Sea. And then there's a sequel called The Tombs of Achuan, which is about a wizard named Jed who meets a girl named Tenna and rescues her from a bad situation, a pretty typical fantasy trope. But what is interesting, though, is that Le Guin uh, sort of got a bit of criticism of this story being a little bit uh, typical of that kind of fantasy, very kind of masculine. And she actually decided to kind of write a different narrative for the main character. So she then had in her story Tahanu, a story about a mother and a daughter. So Tenna from the other story and Tahanu from a female perspective and an emphasis on female magic being as strong as, as male magic. So she decided to kind of rework the way she wrote to try and uh, have a more uh, feminine perspective and 
and, and her, what I like about her is she's constantly criticizing her own work and reworking new concepts and ideas. So she took that criticism, she listened to it, and then she wrote the same female character who was basically in the first novel, a slave that gets rescued by a magician, a male magician marries and doesn't really have much of a narrative. So suddenly in the book, Tahanu having her own story and sort of saving the day, which I thought was really cool. Mm. Um, and then her other novel, uh, The Left Hand of Darkness, written in 1969, is quite famous, sort of set in a fictional uh, universe and tells the story of a uh, native Terran, uh, Terra, generally AI or A, who is uh, sent to persuade a nation of uh, another sort of race to join the sort of confederacy. And he discovers the race that he finds uh, are, are called A-bisexual with no fixed sex. And, and it kind of really impacts the way the planet is, and which is, was a really sort of revolutionary way of looking at, at gender. So these, these uh, sort of um, this race can change from male to female depending. They almost go on heat, and they go on like a heat cycle. And and so and you know the main character sort of falls in love with one of these these characters, and, and he's questioning his ideas of gender. So it was it's considered one of the first book of the genre within feminist science fiction. So it was quite uh, influential. And um, I'm going to stop there, and then I was going to maybe, maybe do the intro for the one who walks from Omelas. Yeah, that'd be good. Oh yeah, I have a bit of more on Le Guin, but I'll just skip that. I'll just go to the ones. So the ones who walk away from Omelas is a short uh, work of philosophical fiction written in 1973. The story was. Uh, nominated for the Locus Award for Best Short Fiction and won the Hugo Award for Best Short Fiction. And um, that's pretty much all I've got. I've just got a couple of quotes from Le Guin, but we can kind of go into that once we talk a little bit about the story. Okay. Um, I've got a little bit more about the actual story. So written in, in 1973, it follows on from um, her, her book series, which was started in 1968. So she's, I think she's written this as almost a stopgap, but she didn't stop writing. But this is a short, yep. short story that sits in the, between her larger works. Um, and the philosophical elements of it, uh, there's been a couple of people that have written on it, um, but I think I've found some things which have not been written about um, yet, which we can get to. Um, so the, the most common thing is to talk about the Jungian arch archetypes in relation to the story. So you have, um, lots of her, her stories have Jungian archetypes. Um, um, yeah. And this is pointing towards, as you're saying, with the asexuality of beings, um, it points towards the animus and the anima. Um, so Jung, uh, for those that, that aren't aware, um, there's these archetypes which make up every single person. So not only do you have the consciousness and the um, subconsciousness or unconsciousness as you have like in Freud, um, Jung says that we have uh, consciousness, subconsciousness, and then a collective consciousness. And as part of the subconsciousness, you can have different um, archetypes which can form um, for a person. And two of those is the animus and the anima. Animus is the masculine um, archetype, which is inside a woman. And the anima is the fem female or feminine archetype, which is inside a man. So it almost explains um, the internal dialogue that you have in relation to with opposite gender um, and tries to explain what the, um, the neuroses that can actually form as part of an individual's life um, between their parents or um, their sexual um, desires away from what Freud just pointed as the Oedipus complex, which is um, that everyone wants to actually sleep with their mother um, and then potentially taken later to if you are a woman, you want to sleep with your father. That um, denotes um, a heterosexuality um, and has been critiqued quite quite strongly. So um, that's the background that, that Le Guin's um, stories are often pointed towards. However, there is some other deep stuff in this, this short stories. Um, yeah. And I think I, sh I should say from the outset, uh, and you've said that you, you like Ursula Le Guin quite a lot, I have never read a four-page story with as much philosophy inside it um, than this. It's yeah. phenomenal. Um, it's absolutely amazing, and I'm almost angry that I haven't actually read it up until this point, but sort of glad because now I've got the understanding 
to unpack some of the aspects which she does point towards, but then people uh, uh, look over, and I think that there's there's work to be, here to be done um, with Omalas um, that that hasn't been been touched on. Um, yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. I know we should just quickly a quick summary because it's a very quick text. Is that mm-hmm. basically it's describing um, an idyllic, utopic kind of society undergoing a festival and uses a lot of very colourful language. And then it gets towards the sort of last two pages and you realize that this, the sort of the positive and the great and the wonderful society can only exist with the um, entrapment and uh, t- kind of torture of a young child. Yeah. And it's sort of and then it's asking the question. So, so can you walk away from it or do you accept that that's part of the sacrifice to live in that society? And that's a very simplistic version. We're going to unpack it all. But that's the sort of. Story. Absolutely. So I think um, from the outset, the, in relation to the societal structure that it actually has, um, it's not an idyllic society that um, is some sort of peaceful utopia. Um, morality doesn't come into this. She says at one point, you know, that you should um, imagine, uh, you know, uh, negative aspects to it. You know, if it's quite if if an orgy would help, don't hesitate. <laughs> Yeah, I like that too. It's just whatever. Um, And it's talking about a society that has a belief in something but no organisational structure. So she separates the aspect of religion. She says religion, yes, clergy, no. So it's a spirituality, not um, organised religion and such. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think the point is, is like she says, I think at one point it's like, do you not like the way I'm describing it? Well, just kind of imagine whatever you like. It's, it, this is just, it's not really the point. And, and I think with a lot of her descriptions, it's the same. It's very, um, it's kind of suggestive. It's like, is there like t- technology? Are there trains? I don't know. Like, it doesn't really matter. Well, the te- just, technology, I, I think you're right. Um, sorry, I'm excited to jump on things. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think that you're right. And it's funny how she's got this, this step back um, approach as the author um, and yeah, makes assumptions on the basis of things. But she's writing, she uses some terminology here that other philosophers use and that are writing at the same time, um, which uh, gets, has, has not been mentioned. Um, if we go to the first page, um, which is... Um, this is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. If you can't lick them, join them if it hurts, repeat it. So she's talking about the, the society and how it's made up and that they are not simple, um, though they are happy. And there is almost this banality um, in relation to, to evilness, um, which is not in present for the Umlas. That is a reference directly to Hannah Arendt. So Hannah Arendt, 1961, Eichmann trial, she writes, she's sent there to report on it, uh, and she writes um, what ends up being a book, and it is about the banality of evil. The Holocaust for Hannah Arendt is caused by bankers, by bureaucrats, by people that are pushing numbers around from one piece of paper to another and saying, I did a good job. You know, I did the right thing. How good is it? that I lowered the number of potential people on a train and processed them fast enough, almost justifying that, well, someone else made this decision to kill all these people. I did it in the best way possible because I did a good job. That's banality because it, ref- it doesn't have a reflection. So she's talking about here the reflection of these people, that they are not simple. They live simple lives, but they are not simple people. Um, yeah, and I think people say, well, if what she's trying to critique as well is that we assume that if people are happy that they're simple, that they're not mm-hmm. understanding what's going on. And I think she's trying to say that do not think that these these people are unknowing. They are constantly, they're aware both of that there are bad things in the world and they're aware also of this child that is suffering as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they're not ignorant. Yeah, totally. Now, the next thing that she goes on to in relation to technology for me, um, and if I can just read the short passage, for instance, how about technology? I think there would be no cars, no helicopters in and above the streets. This follows from the fact that the people of Umla are happy people. Happiness is based just upon a discrimination of what is necessary, what is neither necessary nor destructive, and what is destructive. Okay, so 
If you substitute the word destructive here for annihilation, and that's what she's meaning in relation to this, is annihilation, and she's talking about modern technology, not just technology, she's talking about Heidegger. She's mm -hmm. referencing Martin Heidegger's Dasein and his critique later on about modern technology. So um, to unpack that Dasein's a, a complex term and everyone generally gets confused about Heidegger because he's... Um, I was listening to an interview with someone who explained Heidegger like a crab, um, that you get close to the crab and he tries to bite you then steps away a little bit. So you're like, okay, yeah, I understand the philosophy. Is this it? You poke it and the crab goes, fuck off, bites you and then runs away. <laughs> um, that's basically his philosophy in general. It's so hard to actually understand. But Dasein, being in the world, that's what it actually means, being in the place. What gets in the way of being in the world is the way that you deal with technology. And he talks about being an artisan. So an artisan uses different objects in the world in a set way, but doesn't destroy the earth. Doesn't destroy the earth and use things just as a means to an end. Um, now bear in mind, this is written by a Nazi. Heidegger was a Nazi. Um, he, he's also an environmentalist though. Um, it, it says that modern technology will use the world as a means to an end and it is this destruction which gets in the way of how to actually be in the world. The Dasein, to be in that space. So the Umlas are actually Dasein, they are beings. They are properly living their lives as how they should live their lives and how we are all asked to live our lives. The cost yeah. of that. Is is quite amazing. Um, yeah, but it, they still have tech, some technology, right? I guess what she's trying to say is that it's not like everything's done for them. They yeah. but they still have, and that she's she's suggestive. So she's basically she says, in the middle middle category, that of the unnecessary but undestructive, that of comfort, luxury, exuberance, etc. They could perfectly well have central heating, subway trains, washing machines, and all kinds of marvelous devices not yet invented here. Hmm. So she's sort of take, making a bit of a joke as well. And I read it as quite being sort of tongue-in-cheek, the whole story, to be honest. Like, yeah. it's sort of like, well, I, I don't really care what you do. They can have anything you guys want. It's not yeah. the point. I yeah, that's I, I get that. But the, the point is that they are beings in the space. This stuff is not getting in the way. The yeah, stuff yeah, is I not actually taking over and consuming their Dasein. They're being yeah. in the world. They're being in the space. And that... That aspect of being almost um, what you are naturally called to do um, is what is interrupted by modern technology for Heidegger's later work. And this is what she's talking about, this simplistic return to a life, an idyllic life, um, yeah. not a simple life of simplicity. Um, Definitely. And then, and then in that same section is when she sort of says, um, uh, so... Uh, what did she say? I feel that, uh, but even granted trains, I feel that Omelas so far strikes some of you as goody goody. Smiles, bells, parades, horses, blur. If so, please add an orgy. If an orgy would help, don't hesitate. Let us not, however, have. To, and then it goes on to the temples and things. And so she's sort of like, I, to me, she's, it's almost like trying to paint a picture and, and trying to make it as accurate for us to focus on the fact that these aren't flawed. And I think that's the main thing, that these these people are engaged, they have technology, but they're not being overrun run with it. They even can have orgies that aren't, you know, that aren't sort of pre naked priests, sort of with nude priestesses and stuff. They're having, I guess, consensual, happy orgies. Like, it's sort of like, you know, it's a sort of her saying like this, these people are kind of like living life to the fullest, really. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It's, um freedom of expression and freedom of, of insistence. So it's freedom of being. So this Dasein, that's, that's exactly what Heidegger's talking about. And Heidegger's writing at this time and is becoming popular through France. So in, in France, um, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre uh, writes being in nothingness, a response to being in time, um, which was sort of forgotten through the Second World War, and yeah. uh, resuscitates uh, Heidegger so that people in the philosophical world start discussing it. This was a big thing. It was really, really huge. Yeah. And I think that she's read Heidegger. I, th I think that 
like the, the technology thing that she refers to, um, Hannah Arendt's The Banality of Evil, that's a phrase coined by Hannah Arendt. That is not something that was part of the collective consciousness beforehand. And this was debated very strongly with Jewish circles, particularly in the US, where Hannah was being sent from. Hannah was a student of Heidegger's and also had a love affair with Heidegger. She's, she's clearly influenced by these people. And it seems uh, from the critiques that I've read that it's almost overlooked in relation to Ursula Le Guin's um, stories. And people are talking about the psychological elements or the psycho-philosophic uh, elements of her works. And you've got these, these deep philosophical ideas. And we're only on the second page out of four. Yeah, which is definitely. And, and she does give mention when she asks about the sort of some of the inspiration uh, in the story. She gives uh, to Do uh, Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov mm. and then also... William James's uh, The Moral Philosopher and the Moral Life, yeah. sort of a similar kind of concept, the idea that, you know, having one person suffer for the joy of everybody else. So she is, the fact that she's engaging with other philosophers, I wouldn't be surprised if she wasn't engaging with, with other people at the time. Yeah. She she writes social fiction. She, I mean, she writes philosophical fiction. So this is, she's a very engaged writer. She doesn't just write for entertainment, and that's why mm. she's so interesting. It's so, it's so, these are all people that are, you know, my PhD stuff, but there are also people like that I, you know, these are my favourite people, and when I got the opportunity to turn teach at Newcastle, these are people I listed in my yeah. wish list of people to teach, like these are, it's amazing. Um, yeah. And it, it, it so clearly explains what's going on. The last thing that she talks about, and um, uh, what, what I think, or maybe before um, we, we get to um, the, the treatment of the child, but she, she yeah paints it so vividly like i love this um the room is three paces long and wide a mere broom closet or a disused tool room in the room a child is sitting it could be a boy or a girl it looks about six but it is actually nearly ten it is feeble-minded perhaps it was born defective or perhaps it has become an imbecile through fear malnutrition and neglect it picks its nose, occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals, and it seems haunched in the corner, furthest from the bucket and the two mops. It is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. Like, it's so vivid. It's such a, a good passage. And it's going from, at the beginning of the story, she's using this almost opaque language, and then gets to the more actualities um, of the treatment of the child. And the child here... Um, uh, William James talks about it a little bit, not with um, uh, religious experience, but the moral philosophy and morality of religion um, works that he actually spoke and wrote about. And um, I, I didn't know that she referred to him, but um, yeah, that's clear through this work. But it's also uh, in relation to Rene Girard's work, which comes later in 1986, but it's the scapegoat. Basically, yeah. makes an argument that John the Baptist was killed because society needed a scapegoat. Um, Peter denies it um, in relation to Jesus' trial, and then Jesus becomes the scapegoat, scapegoat. And then René Girard takes that concept and applies it to Oedipus, um, who's the story about the guy that wants to sleep. Well, the guy that's told in, in Greek mythology that he's going to sleep with the mother and have children, he tries to avoid it, he ends up killing the father through some some way uh, and then ends up sleeping with the mother and having his children which are also his siblings hence the term Oedipus complex um, this aspect of using a scapegoat so the scapegoat here is the father um, Romulus and Remus scapegoat this what, what she's pointed to here is that society is requiring to use scapegoats and the scapegoat here is the innocent child. Yeah, and you've got other a uh, lot of people that I can't remember the religious, like exact name of the religions that kind of engage with it. But it's like they'll have one night of sort of kind of um, where they can kind of let go of certain um, taboos and things, and mm -hmm. kind of have a bit of I forget which society does it, but uh, which festival. But it's like um, suddenly things that they go and they drink a lot, and then they go back to normal. It's like we need to purge our. Um, Kind of more animalistic kind of um dionysian <laughs> kind of urges if this and then once we do it's sort of released and that's sort of similar kind of kind of like the scapegoat you've got to have like 
something has to be sacrificed in order for everybody yeah. else to be happy. Yeah, whether it be an internal sacrifice or a sacrifice of society itself and um, cultures which are, um, I use the word polytheism, but it's Hinduism is not really polytheistic in, in the, the way that it is commonly taught. Um, the, the societies that have these, uh, you know, statues of gods which are cleaned or destroyed and rebuilt at certain times, mm. it, it, it becomes a physical embodiment almost of a sacrifice um, and a sacrificial element. There's something in, in inherent in humans, or argues Gerard, um, and I think that uh, what Le Guin is exploring here is there is something in the Omlars that says, well, to be part of this idyllic structure and this idyllic society, you need to be okay with the destruction of that individual, knowing that it is a, a child, knowing that it is innocent, but you cannot feel sorry for that person. Yeah. And then the, what's interesting too is that, that they they do like a viewing of the child, which I think is quite interesting too, mm. so that they take children when they're believed to be able to understand sort of eight and 12 they go look at the child they're not allowed to say anything kind to them so there's mm -hmm. this is also this social contract that everybody's sort of signed where they can't help the child they can't get the child out and they they can't say anything kind to it either and so they're basically the parents take the children they go look at the child they don't say anything and they sort of leave and then you know naturally the children get really angry and they're like well this is um, not fair we need to sort of take them out and and basically, uh, as they get a bit older and the parents try to explain it, they realize that's the exchange and that's the terms um, and they have to. So Le Guin says, those are the terms to exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omelie, um for this, that single small improvement. To throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one, that would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. So they basically um, explain it away and they and they all basically accept it, that that's just the terms and, and it's a shame, but there's nothing we can do. Yeah, yeah. And the, the next line, the terms are strict and absolute. There must not even be a kind word spoken to the child. Yeah. It's, um, and the, 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 my favourite section is the, the last part of that next paragraph, which is about how, um, you know, they know that they, uh, they know what they, like the child, are not free, they know compassion. This is about the people that actually walk away from the last, which hopefully uh, we'll get um, a, a quote actually played at the end of this, I think. Um, it's quite amazing, quite amazing, this paradox and, and what she refers to as um, they've seen the child in the face and they've faced this terrible paradox that they have to um, accept that that is the way that society is based upon, that their cost is that child. Yeah, definitely. And then towards the end, they some people leave, but they, they also have making a sacrifice. They leave alone and they enter darkness. They do not come back. And mm. the place they go towards is less imaginable, uh, less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. So it's really, really scary. It's not like, and, and I think that's obviously, I think the... The story, the question Le Guin's asking is, which do we want to do? Do we want to walk off on our own in darkness or do we want to stay in a society that has so much um, sort of evil in it? Mm -hmm. in a, you know, that's sort of one of the ways that it can be read and, and in like a simplistic way and sort of how do, how do you in a modern world, how can you walk away from this stuff? And I guess there's a practical aspect. I don't know. How can you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, because um, I read about a story about a woman that, uh, sorry, a writer that teaches this at school. So a lot of teachers and literature teachers and philosophy teachers use this as a piece of work because it's so useful and such a good uh, way of sort of explaining this sort of sacrifice. And um, the I'm just trying to see the name of the writer. Yeah, so this uh, teacher says that she gives this to her students to read and all of them read it and go, well, I would walk away. Of course, I'd walk away. And she'd say, out of all the students, most of them would put their hands on. And then when she says, well, why don't we look at this like America? And you look at those children as those starving children on the ads from Africa, and we all turn away. So at the beginning, we see the children in the dirt with, you know, kind of uh, sores on their bottom and stuff. And this is what how she describes, you know, Le Guin describes a child as well, being this sort of in their own excrement and 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 sick and with it with even with the belly kind of um yeah, the yeah. belly and so what you know and this the um the kind of this author that does these exercises sorry the uh, teacher says well you're doing this anyway we first see the child we get outraged we get horrified we're sickened 
And then afterwards we change the channel, don't we? Because we don't want to look at it anymore, right? Mm. And that's exactly what, in a way, it's what we do, what the, the people in the story do. They see the children, starving children in Africa. It's too hard. We're not sure what we can do about it. And they start to make the same excuses they do. Will it really help, you know, if we get those children from Africa? It's such a complex issue. And and so then they, they have to try and defend their way of life. And it's so interesting that we start off with this feeling of outrage and then we all sort of have to try and <laughs> kind of explain it away as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, I don't know if it's a personification of, of how... Uh, we look at charity though and poor because that's not a known sacrifice to that society. I get, I get the author's point and I get, oh, sorry, the teacher's point. I understand mm. what they're trying to do. But this is about a, a bringing down of um, someone that is um, of high merit and the destruction of that person knowingly. And I think the Twitter storm. Um, and what John Ronson writes about with um, "Have you been, uh, have you been publicly shamed?" is the book, um, yeah. and he uh, sees there's, there's someone that it's an air hostess, and she said um, she wrote a tweet and said, um, "Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS or something like that." Sent the tweet like pretty bad. Hops on the plane, and then the plane leaves. By the time she got to the, she landed, Twitter had completely blown up. She had like 20 or 30,000 people retweeting her, people slamming her on social media saying she's a horrible person and that she needs to be sacked. She was sacked immediately without even being told that she was going to, that was going to happen. Um, the, um, the air flight company goes into like a, a defense mode um, and she struggles to get her own voice actually heard. But so that's the individual and she didn't mean anything by it. It was a, it was a poorly used um, commentary. It's not anything backed up on any sort of racist ideology or anything like that. Um, but it was, it was a really, really poorly used judgment as to why she did this. Um, and why Johnson, uh, John Johnson um, points towards it is that it is this aspect of um, public shaming um, yeah. that everyone enjoys. And Twitter and those sort of social media platforms enjoy that, that they enjoy to bring up someone it's like, the, it's like the Colosseum, right? It's like the Colosseum watching people getting yeah. eaten by lions. There's a certain amount of joy. And it, it has a word, I don't know the word, but where you take joy of like seeing people injured and things. Shannon, Shannon Faden, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> right, that's exactly what it is, right? We love watching the spectacle and the drama. Mm-hmm. You know, people love watching other people get ripped apart on the internet. And I, I agree, we, we've talked a bit about this before, what I think about, like, that sometimes I think call out culture goes a bit too far mm. i think people should be reprimanded and but if you can do it if they're doing it in a place of either ignorance or is something not too harmful then i think that person could be contacted um sort of through private messaging or through an email and just say hey this comment was really hurtful do you mind taking it down rather than it turn always into a spectacle like that person's learnt their lesson. You know what I mean? Like, if, if them doing a kind of Twitter apology saying, I'm really sorry, but how much does that feel? You know, it's just, it's a very sticky thing. I don't know for how, how I think about it, but I just find that sometimes that it, it goes too far and you kind of wonder what's the benefit. You know what I mean? There was no dialogue there between her and we didn't, we weren't able to unpack it together and work out how, why it was offensive and she, she could have had like a learning moment, but it won't. Now she's embarrassed, she's lost her job. What did we achieve out of yeah. it? She I wasn't, and later she wasn't yeah, able to leave the house. She yeah. got destroyed, absolutely destroyed. And this is what happens with um, lots of people in society that they are, are built up and then destroyed because society seeks out these people to destroy. So the Umlas here have decided that no, it's not going to be anyone from our society that is going to do it. It is that child. That child is going to be the perpetuation of all of our fears and our hates and our distaste and disregard. That child is going to be representative of everything that we find bad about the world and we're going to centre towards that and we cannot feel sorry about that person. That's really interesting. 
Yeah, I think there's multiple ways to read it because, I mean, you can read it as, as kind of like a real-life parable of how we constantly in society are kind of existing on the backs of other people suffering, whether it's your smartphone design in sweatshops, whether it's your clothes design in sweat. You know what I mean? It's like we are constantly, whether it's animals in factory farms, we exist in a world where there is sort of suffering for us to be able to do the luxuries we want to do. And it may not be as literal and obvious as in the story but it, it still exists we still exist on the certain backs of people suffering right mm -hmm. and so it can be read like that but it also could be read as the individual like what kind of um moral like that we have these two sides of us internally as well we have the sort of need to the darker side and the positive side and and um there's a few other critiques of different ways to read it so i think that's why it's quite a good piece is there's multiple readings yeah yeah um it's really deep and I'm, I'm glad you suggested it it's a really really good text um i very much enjoyed it yeah and i, I just love the what it was i thought was interesting too is is kind of the way it's written is almost a little bit like ginsburg in the beginning it's that um constant images you know how yeah. uh, Ginsburg does like uh the rhythmic kind of oral in the way it sounds and I found the beginning of it similar kind of rhythmic language yeah that, that well I, I wrote opaque language but it's yeah you're right there is this rhythm to it and it's sort of removed but then it starts to get more into what's happening with the society and then it gets drawn in further to the individual and then drawn in even further towards the um the child and then there's the people that walk away from the child um, so mm. the story becomes pointed more, more and more pointed as you're going down into it, um, and it's really skillful how she's done that. Yeah, definitely. But it, it's still the same, written sort of a similar way, like sentence long, kind of descriptive sentences of visuals, even when she's describing the child. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but the the tone obviously changes pretty dramatically because it's a lot darker. In, and and so I mean, I guess if you're looking at it as being a ref reference to sort of real life i mean do you think there is a way we can exist where there is we're not kind of contributing to suffering not really <laughs> well uh, i'm not sure uh, on the suffering point but in relation to building up um and destroying something um so needing to use a scapegoat for something um there is a number of religions which exist that make the scapegoat um as a constant endeavour so that societies don't need to do that towards some of their own or some others that are part of it. It's just sad that when um, some societies get turned politically that they do perpetuate the others as being those that need to be um, the scapegoat. Yeah, so that well, I know one way. One way you shouldn't go, and that is suicide. <laughs> if we take our next week's reading, <laughs> that's going to be. But but this kind of feeds in nicely with the idea of the absurdity of, of existence, right? Is that Whoa. that we exist in a state of, of suffering and, and you know of not being able to really be fulfilled completely, and that's what kind of what where some people turn to suicide or the great kind of question, right? That yeah. that who explores, which we'll explore next week. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think that this is almost a, it, from, if we wanted to identify the absurdist in this story, it is the all-class of themselves and those that want to stay are the absurdists. Um, but then there's the choice that's made and, and they, uh, she points towards them, Luquin points towards the people that walk away as having a perpetual movement away. Yeah. They don't move away and they go and live over the river or something like that and have another society. It's a place which cannot be explained. And they're constantly walking away from that, um, that society that is doing that thing, uh, which is an interesting choice as well. Mm, definitely. Um, no, I think it's a really good story and it's so, it's so short. And for teaching Abe that can so kind of creatively and entertaining, in an entertaining manner, taken such... Uh, kind of complex ideas of morality, philosophy, uh, is just really cool, you know, because a lot of the time some of this stuff just goes over people's heads, but mm. to just engage in, in a quick sort of six-page story is just pretty impressive. Yeah, totally. Totally. I agree. Um, um, do you have you know. anything else to say on it? No. Uh, I don't think so. So we covered, what did we cover? Hannah Arendt, Heidegger. <laughs> um, the scapegoat, Rene Girard, and then potentially a little bit of Camus. 
um, but so to be all in four pages of my prints. Oh, yeah. It's pretty good. There's just one other thing I thought was kind of funny. So people sort of asked how Le Guin got the idea of the sort of omelas, and she said she read a road sign backwards in the rear view uh, vision mirror for Salem, Oregon. So Oregon, the O for Oregon, and then Salem backwards is omelas. <laughs> And so um, she says that people ask me, where do you get your ideas from, Mrs. Le Guin? And she says, um, from forgetting Dostoevsky and reading road signs backwards naturally, where else? <laughs> her inspiration. That's very funny. Yeah, I just liked it that people, because people think, wow, you've got such cool ideas. And yeah. it's like, it's just, I just no. saw it in a <laughs> looking backwards. So, kind of yeah, that's quite cool. It's very good. Yeah. Uh, do you want to rate it? And what should we rate it out of? Um... Tears of the tears of a child. No. Ten, ten out of <laughs> like, yeah, out of ten uh, orgies or omelets or. <laughs> let's. Uh, I don't know. Let's rate it omelets. Ten out of ten omelets. Drews. We didn't talk about Drews, which is the drug. So oh yeah. Yeah. She refers to it as Drews, and it ought to be beer. What else belongs in the Joyce City? Um, all right. Out of omelas, uh, would you like to go first, or do you want me to go first? Ah, uh, you can go first. Ah, uh, okay. Um, I can't fault it. Uh, I think it's awesome and amazing, and I would give it ten out of ten omelas. Yeah, me too. I think we agree on that one. I don't think this. I mean, it's just such a short story anyway. It's sort of, and it's all done well, and mm. it's interesting, and I think it's a cool concept. So yeah, we agree. Yay, ten out Yay. of ten. We're back to agreeing. Now, next yep, week, we can have a fight about something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to try and argue that Camus with you then. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll see. Um, but, yep, next week we are going to finally try and tackle Camus. We've been talking about it for yep. weeks. We're where... going to be back together in the same space. And I'm going to bring my printed edition, you're going to bring your printed edition, yep. and we can compare notes and such. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Mm. You are or you're not? I am. Yes, oh, very, okay. very much so, yes. Um, yeah, no, I was also looking forward to this week too. Uh, I think it was really good. Uh, yeah. In the show notes, I will put a link to um, the outro uh, uh, passage that is read by Nana Tucker, who is also known as Nana Vista, uh, and she played uh, Jean Ritter in Deep Space Nine. Um, I couldn't find a reading from uh, Le Guin of Online. Not on this one, yeah. Yeah, which is a shame, um, but I, I wanted to, you know, share a, a woman actually reading um, this story, and I think, yeah, you like this reading too, so, yep. yeah, let's play that. Um, anything else? Um, no, and we can put the link to the, uh, we just found online versions of the short story as well, if anyone wants to read it, and um, we'll catch you next week. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. 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 They know that they, like the child, are not free. They know compassion. It is the existence of the child and their knowledge of its existence that makes possible the nobility of their architecture, the poignancy of their music, the profundity of their science. It is because of the child that they are so gentle with children. They know that if the wretched one were not there sniveling in the dark, the other one, the flute player, could make no joyful music as the young riders line up in their beauty for the race in the sunlight of the first morning of summer. Now do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? But there's one more thing to tell, and this is quite incredible. At times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage, does not in fact go home at all. Sometimes also a man or woman much older falls silent for a day or two and then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and walk straight out of the city of Omelas through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across the farmlands of Omelas. Each one goes alone, youth or girl, man or woman. Night falls. The traveler must pass down village streets, between the houses with yellow-lit windows, and on out into the darkness of the fields. Each alone, they go west or north, towards the mountains. They go on. They leave Omelas. They walk ahead into the darkness, 
and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist. But they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Omalas.